step into the shoes of one of the greatest criminal mysteries of all time. D.B. Cooper, the mysterious hijacker who jumped out of a plane with a bag full of cash and was never seen again. Join us as we investigate the evidence, explore the various theories, and delve into the psyche of a man who pulled off the perfect crime. Tonight on Newsworthy, two words and two question marks. Scoured the podcast world and finally found us. Newsworthy with Steve and Jerry, where we delve into all things mysterious, macabre, or out of this world and decide if they are truly newsworthy. Two words and two question marks. Why should you work with Ed Locke? A better question is, why wouldn't you work with him? He is a proud to support an amazing lender, USA Mortgage. When you work with them, you can expect a home financing experience that is free of hassles and headaches. They have complete control over your loan due to in-house operations such as processing, underwriting, closing, and funding. USA Mortgage represents a lot of fantastic things but they are especially thrilled to partner in several community outreach programs, including Habitat for Humanity, Home Sweet Home, Veterans Community Project, and many, many more. They love going to work every day, which means they love working for you. Ed wants to be your lender for life, so reach out to him today and get the journey started. If you would like more information, please reach out to Edlock at area code 502-680-0953. NMLS 448-908, USA Mortgage NMLS 227-262. USA Mortgage is an equal housing lender. This is not a commitment to lend. Additional terms and conditions may apply. For licensing information, go to www.nmlsconsumeraccess.org. Hello, Mr. Jerry. How are you? Doing great. How about yourself? I'm good. I'm oh, good. good. I, I'm very saddened to look over and not see a place, uh, a Brett. I absolutely agree with you. Apparently today, um, Brett was getting his butt hair braided. Yeah, and, we uh, was, uh, it hated went that for a couple of reasons. We hated it for a couple of reasons. Yeah, we hated that it had to happen. We hated that he took, put more priority in that than he did coming here. So I know. Terrible. It is what it is. Well, maybe next week he'll come in and won't have the same issues he did this last week. <laughs> yeah, I mean, if it was something like, you know, a family Christmas party, now that's understandable. Yeah, you know, if you yes. got family issues, I mean, you know, you got something Christmas, it's holiday season. We'd understand that, but uh, Absolutely. a hair appointment? Come on. <laughs> Anywho. Um, oh, man. Jerry, I don't know. You know I'm a busy guy. I do real estate. I work for yes, the, the nonprofit. Are. We do the podcast. I'm also filming a documentary. Really? Yeah, about how to pilot a plane. Okay. 
Yeah, we're we're. Filming. I know you're a pilot, but I didn't know you're that far along to be making a documentary. Yeah, we're Go, making. Yeah, we're wanting to. We're trying to teach people to fly planes. Right now, good. we're filming the pilot. Oh, oh, oh. <laughs> boo! I'll boo my own joke. It was bad. Boo! Just boo yourself off stage <laughs> on that one. Huh? It wasn't the uh, podcast last week, was it? When you were telling Brett about that, I was afraid to fly with you. No, I, think just we were, I, I don't talking. think we were on the air, no. Which is not true. I wasn't afraid of you. I was actually had a chance when I was uh, sophomore, junior in college, had a roommate whose brother was a pilot and had a chance to go up in one of the little small Cessnas. And I was sitting next to George. His name was George Jones. My roommate was Jeff Jones. And I was sitting next to him, and he started it up. It was the first time I'd ever heard one of the little small planes engine and for those of you that have not heard it it sounds identical to a Briggs and Stratton three and a half horsepower <laughs> I kid you not so it had nothing to do with you being the pilot that made me afraid to go up it was the sound of those engines that those things so make. here's the thing when I was training it, and Stephanie listens to the, the podcast she, yep. she and Chris Carter listen to the both of those guys helped train me right um They'll tell you at the very right before you get on the runway, you you before you take the runway to take off because once you get on the runway, it's yours. Yep. Everybody else is in a holding pattern. So you do a few final checks, and one of those is the throttle check. Okay. And uh, you're basically just making sure your throttle stick works. Right. But I would always rev the engine. Boom, boom. And it would drive them nuts. <laughs> I'm like, throttle check. Boom, boom. <laughs> Yep, I could see that. Typical boy. <laughs> Little boy with a big engine. Yep, pretty much. You <laughs> you know, because there's no exhaust on those planes. Right. That's why they're so loud when they come when they fly. You know, those little planes, they have a pipe, but it doesn't have a muffler on it. it just, exactly. So it sounds. You know, I mentioned me being afraid to fly in the small planes. That actually is not the only thing that I was have a fear of. Oh, I don't know if I ever told you, but for the longest time, I had a fear of planting fruit trees. Really? I did. But I finally grew a pair. <laughs> Gotta love it when you beat those anxieties. Kudos to like you one, huh? for saving the dad joke portion of the show this week. That was much needed. You did a good job. Would have never thought a pear tree would have done that. <laughs> So, Jerry, today I am not drinking cold sweet red. You are not? I am drinking a Natty Light. Yes, you are. And for a very specific reason, um, uh, I have had the privilege in my life to have not one, but two amazing stepdad, or stepfather-in-laws. My previous father-in-law, Les, passed away yesterday. Um, Uh... Yesterday morning early, and he had had a short battle with cancer. Uh, great man. Uh, I can't speak highly enough of him. You know, given how our relationship started compared to how our relationship ended, if you will, uh, night and day, he wouldn't let me in his house for the first six months I knew him, and I didn't know him. I wasn't allowed in the house. Yep. He didn't like the fact that I was dating his daughter. He 
In fact, she was coming out of a bad marriage, and in his mind, it was my fault that they weren't together. Uh, and that was not the case. It wasn't. No, it I just, worked with you at the time. I know yeah. it absolutely was not. But yeah, typical father, very protective. Very protective. Didn't want anybody else to come in there and hurt her. Right. And, and, and fair enough. Uh, Les was very old school. Loved his wife. Worked hard his whole life. Loved his grandbabies. He would often, even after uh, we split and I gained custody. Uh, we always had a great relationship. Uh, he would drive from one city to the other every Friday before the boys could drive to come get them and take them home with him for the weekends. And uh, Wasn't afraid to have a hard conversation, even if it hurt your feelings. He, he did it not out of being a, a, an ass, but he did it out of love. Yep. Um, and everything, if you first saw or heard less... He could be a little rough around the edges, but once you learned who he was, you knew everything he did was out of passion and out of love. And um, I can't say enough good things for him. Les, this beer is for you, buddy. Here's Rest in you. peace. Absolutely. The first time that I ever met him and his wife was uh, only a few years ago here at your house. It was uh, a 4th of July picnic that you had that they oh, yeah, come yeah. to. The very fact that your ex-in-laws from at that point, 15 years, yeah. no, more, yeah, had probably. to have been more at that point, at least 15 years previous, your, your former in-laws were coming to your house, says a lot about him and you as well. Yeah. The fact that you guys were able to stay friends for that many years after yeah. The, the, the marriage had lasted. Says a lot to both of you. Yeah. yeah. Again, I didn't get to meet him and wasn't around him very much, but seemed like a, a great guy. Absolutely. Loved them grandbabies. All of them. Yep. So, uh, you know, I'm glad he's with, with with Jesus now, and he didn't have to suffer long. And, and Amen. He, he was a good, good man. So Cancer freaking sucks. Just, it what absolutely like. does. Absolutely it's does. one thing to take a life, but to do it in such a horrendous torturous way yeah. that cancer has a way of doing so many times. Cancer absolutely sucks. Yep, yep. Hate it. In fact, I'm going to get that tattooed on me now that I have personal experience with it. <laughs> Except I think I'm going to do the F cancer yeah, tattoo. There you go. <laughs> Pretty sure that's going to be on my body at some point. What I was thinking. <laughs> I did it. I would, uh, I would have to I still have that. to, you know, we, we got a whole other thing yet to come with that. But uh, anywho. Let's get into today's topic. Today's topic, I'm stoked for it. I'm really happy. Um, And I was really surprised that you weren't into it or hadn't heard as much about it as as I did. I know Brett's really, you know, I can't believe he he decided to get his his hair braided because he was really excited about this. His back hair. At that. Yeah, just crazy. Who gets their back hair braided instead of coming on a podcast? I know, right? Anywho, so tonight's episode is all about the mysterious, the non-existent, the fake person, if you will, according to everything, D.B. Cooper. If you haven't heard of D.B. Cooper, this story has everything but murder in it, basically. That it does. (laughs) Um... And it has hijacking, it has theft, it has James Bond-esque drinking, it has everything. It's it's so 
I, I don't want It's out there. It really it, is. It's it's so brazen. But it's still factual. It's so ballsy. <laughs> just my my guy had like like he grew a pair. Yes, he did. <laughs> Didn't have to plant a fruit tree to get it either. No, he did not. So let's let's talk a little bit about who we're talking about here. So DB Cooper, for all intents and purposes, as far as we know, is a made up name. Well, first of all, it's not even DB. Yeah, it's Dan. It was Dan supposed Cooper. to be Dan Cooper. I don't and even know where the name. B came from. Well, I can tell you. Okay. Let's wait a little bit. I'll wait. Sure. It's not an appropriate time to throw that in, but I'll tell you when we get so, there. You could read and watch a hundred different things and get a hundred different facts about D.B. Cooper. There's no way we can do it all here today. I'm going to condense it down and get through the, 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 the good parts um, as best we can. But let's just say that for over 50 years now, this is the only unsolved hijacking on the FBI on the FBI's books. And for good In reason. the United States. In the United yeah. States. It's the only one that's happened and has not been solved. So, D.B. Cooper, and we're pulling from Wikipedia here just a little bit. D.B. Cooper is a media epitaph for an unidentified man who hijacked Northwest Orient Airlines Flight 305, which was a Boeing 727 aircraft, on November 24th, Thanksgiving night, 1971. During a flight from Portland, Oregon to Seattle, Washington. 30-minute flight. Easy peasy. Um, the hijacker basically got on the plane. He bought a ticket, a one-way ticket, uh, under the name Dan Cooper. Got on the flight, uh, had a briefcase, was wearing sunglasses, nice suit, tie. Uh, Just look like your typical business Typical man. businessman, mid-40s, about 140, 150, narrow, thin features, Looks like your typical businessman. You Very would never so. give this guy the, the, all of second all look. The, you never give him a second look. Basically, he gets on the uh, plane. He sits there. He orders a drink, a bourbon, and Coke, and hands the stewardess a letter. Um, the stewardess, who's quite accustomed to getting numbers and from notes guys. from dudes, because being hit on. Um, Throws it in her uh, apron and proceeds to go on, and he calls her back over and says, uh, Ma'am, you really want to look at that note? I have a bomb. <laughs> and yep. all hell breaks loose from there. Sort of. Now, the crew handle this professionally to the point that no one else on the entire flight, other than the two stewardesses or flight attendants, which one is the way that that's flight attendants today, I guess. Probably. Um, and the flight crew even knew. None of the passengers even knew. Not a single one. Even when um, they disembarked, still didn't know. Right. So basically, he um, hands them a small note, and they immediately let the pilots know. The pilots let Seattle know. Seattle says, get that plane into the ocean. So they divert course, they go over the ocean in case he blows the plane, the plane can't come down and hurt anybody on the ground. Um, the pilots, and here's what he ransomed. Here's, here's what he said. He says, I want $200,000 in small bills. I want four parachutes, and I want a refueling truck on the tarmac when we land in Seattle. 
And to the FBI's credit, they made that happen. They gathered the $200,000 up from all local banks. How much do you think that would be worth in today's money? I'm glad you asked. That was what, 1971, you said? 1971. So, today's yeah, money is $1.4 million. Okay. <laughs> a lot of money. Yes, it was. Um, so um, they, they scurry about. Now, here's the thing that blows me away. And I'm sure the banks have a way of tracking this to make it easier than I'm putting it together in my mind. I got it in my mind. There's some guy going through all the bills, writing down the serial number of every one of them. Because they didn't know the serial number of every bill that they gave. I think I read somewhere they were taking maybe 10, 12, stacking them and taking pictures, which they turned into microfiche copy. I think I read somewhere. Makes sense. So $200,000. They originally tried to give him four military-grade parachutes. Uh, D.B. Cooper said, no, I don't want those. I want uh, parachutes that a normal person would use. They gave them they they gave them four two backpack type parachutes two front pack parachutes. Um, back more on that in just a minute. Sure. Uh, and uh, basically, so the nutshell is they got him that stuff. They tried to stall him while they were on the tarmac. He put all the windows down and said, "You know, this is taking too long. We got to go." So off they went. Uh, very shortly after they take off, the, this particular aircraft, the Boeing 727, had a, a staircase down the back of the plane. It dropped out of the bottom of it. He dropped the bottom. He asked the stewardess how to operate it, which he had an instruction card, which was kind of a, an interesting fact. Uh, dropped it down, put the parachutes on, jumped out. <laughs> no passengers were hurt. Uh, he was nothing but cordial to the people. And D.B. Cooper has not been seen since. <laughs> that's that's it in a nutshell. Crazy, Very right? So. so let's get into some details because details matter. And that they do. This wasn't just some half-cocked, oh, I'm going to do this and I'm going to get away with it. There's a few, in today's world, we're like, how the hell did that even happen? Because there's so many protocols. There's so much that goes on when you're getting on or off a plane. Thanks to 9-11. Thanks to the... the to some small part, thanks to D.B. Cooper. And a lot Things of changed the part, after him. A lot of the plane designs changed after D.B. Mm-hmm. Cooper and his uh, copycats. Uh, the DC-27 or the Boeing 727 didn't last long after this. Uh, they fixed it with what they called the Cooper vein, which prevented the staircase from being lowered mid-flight. Um, but they got rid of those planes pretty quick after this. Which you didn't mean, you didn't specifically say it. It was probably pretty obvious, but he knew that this particular plane he was on yes. had this rear stairwell. Yes, we're going to get into all yeah, that. Yeah. Most of them have it up front, which if you fall out, side. if you jump out, you could hit the wings, you could hit the engine, engine. You, you could, could hit... <laughs> he knew this engine. plane had it. He yep. also knew, from what I've read, that it could not be turned off. The ability to lower it could not be turned off from the cockpit. Right. These are things, these are very specific uh, pieces of information that, that the vast majority of people would not have. Again, 1971, it wasn't like he was Googling it to find out either. Right, and 
1971, you didn't even have to provide a photo ID when you were buying a plane ticket. You didn't have to give any ID. <laughs> None. You walked up to them. And Handed you, them some cash. You give them the $89 or whatever it costs for that flight. Give them the name that you wish them to call you. They handed you a flipping ticket. Yep, and can we you walked imagine? on a plane. Today's world, can you oh, know? Oh, my goodness. Now you got to take your shoes off and, you know, have your butt sniffed. And <laughs> it's, you know, my current father-in-law is a pilot. Yep. So he gets to bypass all that for the most part. But. For the average traveler, and now they have fast lanes you can go through, I guess, if you travel a lot. But for the average traveler, it's such a hassle. Such a pain in the ass to fly. Absolutely. And it's now to the point for most flights, if it's anywhere in the vicinity, it might be easier. probably is way easier. But as far as time involved, you could drive a few hundred miles much quicker than you could fly because you have to get there so far in advance. Right. Right. If it's a small flight, most people, I, I, I don't fly. I, I'm just not going to. If it, and, and we live in central Kentucky. If I'm going to Florida, I'm probably driving. Yeah. I mean. Instead of spending, you know, both ends, probably what? Three, four hours in an airport. And then, a, you know, two, three thousand dollars on top of it. Mm-hmm. I, I'm just not. Sorry. Sorry, Mike. The other thing, <laughs> I'm sure you'll get to it. But the other thing that absolutely blew me away. Other than the fact that you could walk up with your $89 cash and a name that you wanted to be called and get a ticket. The other thing is that in 1971, not only could anyone and everyone smoke on an airplane. Absolutely. There was an ashtray built into the armrest of every seat. Yeah. Yeah. On an enclosed airplane, you were more than welcome to light up. Yeah, absolutely. It just blows my mind. Well... I had a 1969 Buick Riviera. Okay. And it, just to show you the mentality of the 60s and 70s and how prevalent smoking was, in the back seat, it had in the middle, so you had the back seat, and like, if you you have Google, Google the back seat of a 69 Riviera. It has a, a, what looks to be a speaker, place, a place for a speaker. That's not where a speaker goes. That is a duct system to draw cigarette smoke out of the cabin <laughs> and put it into the trunk of the car. Oh my goodness. <laughs> that was luxury, son, I'm here to tell you. <laughs> anyway. So even then they knew it was killing people. We needed to get it out, but they were still putting friggin' ashtrays everywhere. Yeah. And, you know, every car back then had the cigarette lighter that would, you know, you terrorized your siblings with. Yep. You know, but um, so back to D.B. Cooper here. So what is a 727? A Boeing 727 had a crew of six, had a captain, first officer, flight engineer, and two to three flight uh, flight attendants. In this particular case, the captain, Scott, first officer, Radizak, uh, flight engineer Anderson and the flight attendants was Alice Hancock, Tina Mucklow, and Florence Schaefer. Schaefner. Now Tina Mucklow, 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 Mucklow. There, there I'll you. get it out in a second. Was the one that had the most interaction with DB Cooper at, uh, during this whole time. Um, in fact, she said that he was very polite. 
never calm. never got coarse, never got agitated. The only time his voice ever even wavered was when he was saying, "Okay, it's time to go. This is taking too long. We we got to get off the ground." Um, Later described him as a gentleman. Gentleman offered her a tip for the drinks yes. he bought. <laughs> That key, there's there's some tricks here because Jerry here just a little while you're going to cover some of the known suspects, right? And we each have our idea who we think it is. We do. And to me, I'm going to throw up the keys as we go through that. The fact okay. that he was offering a tip is a key to me. Okay. Um, anyway, because what are we doing here? We're we're stealing 1.4 million dollars, right? Correct. So tipping would not be. Something that I think would be on the... <laughs> Anywho. Uh, where was we? So anyway, uh, so here's the thing. We get to the... We get all the passengers. He, he lets all the passengers leave. All after he got his After demands. he got his... Got what he wanted. They all could leave. Yep. He, all, he asked for... This is what he asked for. Four parachutes, non-military, $200,000... He asked for the plane to be refueled, and he asked for food for the for the crew. Another key point that you know this guy's not a a dude who's out there to hurt people, if you will. You don't you don't feed people you're about to blow up, <laughs> in my opinion. So they get that they take off. It's not even ten minutes later before they take off. He hands another note and gives it to the stewardess to give to the captain. The note simply said, all right, boys, here's what we're going to do. We're going to fly this plane at the slowest speed that it can take and remain airborne with the flaps down. He said, by my reckoning, reckoning, that should be about 100 knots or 110 knots or 110 miles an hour. Um, flaps full down. Um, and I thought no I read he even told him what angle. 10,000, he wanted it to no, plane no, no. at 10,000 The feet. flaps at 15 degrees. 15 degrees. Yes. Yep. Well, but you can go 15. Some planes can go 30 now. I don't know if that plane could or not, but you're right. He said 15 degrees. Which shows what? Quite it shows he of, knows what the hell he, he's doing. He had researched. He yes. knew that plane. He knew yeah, He knew a lot about it. He knew that that plane could do slow, what we yep. call slow flight for a great Long while. Distance, right. Now, the flight engineer, or the first officer sent back over the PM and he said, you know, we can do that, but there's no way we can get to Mexico, which he was wanting the plane directed to Mexico That's City. He, where he told him he was headed. That's where he said he was going. He, they radioed back, said, with this setup, this configuration of the plane, we, we don't have enough fuel to get to Mexico City. They decided Reno was the, the fueling stop. They Reno suggested Reno, and he okay, agreed. Sure. He sure. didn't care. <laughs> he didn't care because uh, he then turned to Al, uh, Tina Mucklow and said, Hey, how do you get these stairs to go down? And she showed him, and he said, Thanks, and you might want to go join your folks up in the cockpit. And no one come back. She turned to him, and she said, uh, "Is there? Can you take that bomb with you? He didn't respond. He was already putting on the parachutes and... Um, here's a quick thing about the parachutes. He asked for two front parachutes. Here's one of the things that makes most people think that he was not an ex overly experienced parachute person or parajumper. One of the parachutes, the front one, was a dummy. 
Um, and it had been sewn shut. It had just been sewn shut. It was used to teach people how to pull and what to do when they're pulling the cord. So I never heard. Did they? Did the police knowingly, intentionally do that? I never heard if that was known or intentional. I never. I, in none of the reports that I, I researched did it say that that was intentional because the police went to a local uh, parachute person and, ha- and picked them up from him. So Plus, when he asked for four, it's obvious that at least the ability for him to jump out with some hostages exists. Right. So you wouldn't think you would want to give the possibility of a fake non-working parachute. Right. You wouldn't think. To a hostage. <laughs> Can you imagine? But oh I agree gosh. with you. I, I researched. I couldn't find where the police knew ahead of time that one of these parachutes was non-functioning. I think that maybe, here's my thought. I think that they were in such a panic to get this done. It's a 30-minute flight, and he, they want it done now. That Maybe he just grabbed the wrong one and then Could realized be. after the fact. And again, they went to a private this wasn't a military right. base they right. went to a private place where they parachuted right and i'm sure said hey we need some parachutes we, we need he to- handed them to him and i guess they just took what he gave yeah I, I just can't imagine that so anyway uh he grabbed the money and you even found where they they felt the plane lurch a bit when he jumped off the back of the plane Absolutely. Now, in this process, there were two military jets that had caught up with the plane. One was above and one was underneath the jet so that he couldn't see them out the windows. But they never saw him jump. It was very dark night. Very dark, stormy, lightning, uh, rain, 10,000-foot jump into the middle of the forest. <laughs> now... All of that to say, here's where the mystery starts. All of that is 100% factual. All of that happened. (laughs) The conjecture starts with, did he live? Did he make it? Did he die in the fall? Did he pull the chute? Is he buried somewhere? Did a bear eat him? Where's the money? Not one dollar in 50, how many ever years was spent? Has ever been spent that we are aware of. Not one. Not one. Um, however, on the flip side, so that makes you think, well, maybe he didn't make it. However, they didn't find a parachute or a body. Or a body. Or money. Or money. A little bit of money was found a few years later. We'll get to that. We'll get to that. Yeah, nothing but at the time. Nothing. nothing. And when I tell you that there was a massive manhunt launched the very next day, as soon as the weather cleared, would be an understatement. They sent over two, let me see, let me scroll down here to my uh, uh, um, notes here. So the day after, Immediately after, they put planes and helicopters in looking. Of course, the weather again, we're in the middle of the night. Uh, The weather is terrible. Not going to see a whole lot. But they had helicopters up. They had already started the search. Um, 
So due to the number of variables and parameters, precisely defining the area to search was kind of difficult. The jet's airspeed was estimated that it was a varied. Again, they had to maintain a certain airspeed in the storm to keep it locked, you know, airborne. So that had to change depending on how it was. Environmental conditions along the flight path was terrible. And only Cooper truly knew how long he free fall was in free was in free fall before he pulled the chute. That also means the difference between this five miles or this 25 miles over here or where exactly he landed. Uh, neither of the Air Force F-106 pilots saw him jumping, nor did they see uh, their radars detect a deployed parachute, um, nor did they see a black uh, 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 individual in a black suit <laughs> jump into the night. <laughs> Uh, obviously, moonlight would be difficult to see, but they didn't see any, of course, limited visibility we've covered. It was cloudy. They also didn't see, like, flashlights or something on the ground. Yep. Nothing. Um, uh, One thing I will sure, mention. Sure, sure, sure. Absolutely. That they knew after a period of time. At roughly 8 o'clock their logs or whatever tells them is when the cockpit warning light flashed indicating that the staircase had went down. Right. At 8.13 p.m., the aircraft's tail section suddenly pitched upward, forcing the pilots to trim and return the aircraft to level flight. A few months later, they began to try to think and figure out what could have possibly caused that. They were able to verify that it was him jumping. They verified it by putting a 200-pound <laughs> dummy on the steps and then throwing it off. And according to the flight crew, it had almost identical effects. Wow. So at that point, again, not for several months. So as far as the initial searches, didn't really help then. But at that point, a few months later, we knew almost exactly what time, around 8.13 p.m. that he jumped. Again, that wasn't known for a few months. So you're right. Initially, the search area was quite large that we were looking at. Right, right. <laughs> well, this area is just full of crazy. Maybe you got eaten by Bigfoot. Could have been. <laughs> Literally, we don't know. Um, so, basically, based on the information you just said, they narrowed it down to somewhere on the very southern reaches of the Mount St. Helens area. Yep. It's kind of where they feel like he, he landed. At the time. Uh, at the time. Later, they were able to pinpoint it a little better. Sure, sure. But we're talking about counties that hundreds of thousands of miles and acres, millions of acres of Quite large area. Very wooded. wooded, unpopulated. Rough terrain. Rough hard terrain. To search. I just, I'm so torn on. Whether he made it or not. Well, see, here's another thing. Remember when we met, you said that he initially told them, I want to go to Mexico. Yeah. He obviously had absolutely no intention of going None, there. not any. And when they told him, okay, and it, 
they were in the air when he told them, I want the flaps at 15 degrees. I want an altitude no greater than 10,000 feet. I want a flight speed no greater than 110 knots or whatever it was. They recalculated and said, we got a problem. Yeah. According to these criteria you want us to follow, we no longer have the fuel to get to Mexico. So how about we're, we're going to have to refuel somewhere. They suggested Reno. He immediately said, no problem. Yeah. Which means a few things. He had no specific area that he planned to jump out of. No. He had no one waiting on the ground because he is up in the air and suddenly agrees to a different, a change in flight plan, which they did. They changed and turned and headed t- towards Reno. And he then jumps out. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, and so he, he didn't, didn't know exactly have, where he was at. And, he couldn't have. And he that shows that he didn't have a compli- an accomplice down there waiting on him. Absolutely. You know, I mean, he would have had to encompass thousands of miles. Sure. And we just didn't have the kind of, unless you were military, you didn't have that kind of radio walkie-talkie capabilities back then. Uh, even then, with the change of flight path, I don't know the military had the capability of Probably doing not. that. I mean, I don't know if the military had it, and I would, I would say no. But I it looks like the answer is no. He did. This is a one-man operation. Yeah. So... Shortly after the spring thaw in early 1972, and this happened in November 71, in 1972, a team of FBI agents aided by 200 soldiers, soldiers, excuse me, from Fort Lewis, along with the United States Air Force personnel, National Guardsmen, civilian volunteers, conducted a thorough search of Clark and Cowlitz counties for 18 days. In March... And then another 18 days in April, Electronics Explorations Company, a marine salvage firm, used a submarine to search a 200-foot lake or uh, the 200-foot depths of Lake Merwin. Two local women had stumbled upon a skeleton in an abandoned structure in Clark County, but it was later identified as remains of Barbara Deary, a teenage girl who had been murdered, abducted and murdered, unfortunately. several weeks before. Um, Ultimately, the extensive search recovery operation uncovered no significant material or evidence related to the hijacking. Based on early computer projections produced for the FBI, Cooper's drop zone was first estimated between Ariel Dam to the north and the town of Battleground, Washington to the south. In March of 1972, after another joint investigation with Northwest Orient Airlines and the Air Force, the FBI, uh, Cooper probably jumped over the town of LaCenter, Washington. That's their best guess. One of the other things that is noticeable or noteworthy in this is when they were coming back into land to get refilled, Cooper looked out the window and said, that looks like Tacoma. And he was right. And he knew how many miles away that was from a certain Seattle. Air Force base. Yeah. McCullough Air Force Base. Yeah. Uh, so yeah. just another noteworthy thing, because when you're in an airplane, even at 5,000 5, feet, a town looks different. Unless you have a lot of experience flying over that area. Or you know, you you see a specific landmark. Or, you know, if you were to fly over Lexington, Kentucky, if you didn't know 
that we have a big blue skyscraper and common where Commonwealth Field is, it looks like any other mid-sized city. Sure. I mean, you know, if you fly over Nashville, you look for the Batman, the Batman Tower. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? It's just you look for landmarks. But if you're if you're just a normal person, it's and have had no experience, it's almost impossible to be able to discern one city sure. from another. It's not normal for yeah. the average businessman who, you know, flies quite often. They they don't maybe. In fact, was it 2019, there was a guy in Cleveland that had a big flat roof on his business and he painted Welcome to Detroit on it <laughs> just to mess with the planes, as the, the passengers as they land. And that would work. Land. You know, you would. <laughs> I always thought that was hilarious. One of them things that makes you say, what the heck? Right. So anyway, so they think that they probably, like I said, La Center, Washington. Um, the report indicated in, 2000, in 2019, the FBI released another report indicating that about three hours after Cooper Jump, a burglary, a burglary was reported at a small grocery store near Hessen, Washington. Which is about 10 miles east of La Center. Right, right. Very, very close. Very close. And it's an unincorporated community, um, and it's well within the calculated drop zone. The burglar was noted by the FBI to only have taken survival items, such as beef jerky and gloves. Ding, 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 ding. See, not only am I building a case for you guys, Jerry doesn't think he survived the fall. <laughs> just, I do. We'll, we'll I get to that did. in a few minutes. Yeah. There's a lot of evidence that says he probably didn't. There's yeah. a lot of evidence that says he did. Yeah. You mentioned, you may come back to it in a minute. You mentioned the, the hundreds of soldiers. We had a frick ton of airplanes yeah. that flew over, crisscross yeah. this entire original area. On a grid formation. Huge. Yeah. Trying to find, because they initially thought he, man, this guy didn't make it. He yeah. died. There's, there's a parachute uh, hung in a, a tree yeah. somewhere with him hung in it. There was no evidence found. We, we sent tons of planes up and, and flew them in crisscross patterns over a grid trying to figure out where is the parachute. If this guy didn't make it, there should be a parachute somewhere, right? There should be something somewhere. It's 52 years later. We've yet to find the parachute. What we did find in the mid-'90s was a hunter found an instruction panel on how to lower some stairs. <laughs> and we don't know woods. where it come from. No idea, but it matches. Who else the- <laughs> would have a placard with information on how to lower the, the rear stairwell on, on a 727? Pl- on a plane that, that hasn't been used in 20 space. years. <laughs> yeah. um, so let's talk about some of the later developments. So... Um, first of all, in 2016, the FBI announced that this that this case was going to be suspended, citing the need to focus investigative resources and manpower, obviously on more important issues than a 40 year old 45 years at that uh, point case. Um, but let's talk about some of the things that have have happened. Um. The, the one thing that most people think that probably got rid of the rest of any physical evidence 
was in 1980, obviously, Mount St. Helens exploded, uh, leveled huge chunks of this particular area. So if there was a parachute that had been buried or covered up or hidden, um, that's probably gone to that. Uh, so uh, let's talk about the some forensic evidence. There, during the forensic search of the aircraft, and, and they did do this. Now, we didn't, we talked before, they didn't have DNA evidence at the time. They knew it was coming. They were working on it. So they had already started saving stuff so that they could test it at a future date. Um, but during their forensic search of the aircraft, they found four major pieces of evidence, each with a direct link to the person they thought was D.B. Cooper. They found a black clip-on tie, a mother-of-pearl tie clip, hair from Cooper's headrest, and an eight, or excuse me, eight filter-tip rally cigarette butts from the armrest ashtray. That he was observed to be smoking. Right. Eight cigarettes in two hours. <laughs> he smoked like you used to. <laughs> um of course, if I was getting ready to do what he did, I'd probably smoke them too, to be honest. Um, yep. So, let's see. What's our time looking like here? Oh, gosh, we got to hurry this along. So, let's let's hurry this along. They found a, net, a clip-on necktie um, that had, upon very recent studies, showed some very peculiar things that not everyone would have access to have on their necktie. Uh, that you had to work at very specific things to be able to get it's these molecules. Some heavy metals, heavy microscopic metals. Yeah. heavy metal materials that, yeah, you you don't pick up walking down the street. Right. And it's kind of one of those things, unless you work or eat at an Italian place, you're not going to have, uh, you know, basil up in your tie. Same, same type deal. Um, they found the hair samples, and they have this stuff. However, they have no one to match it to. Uh, Actually, we don't have quite a bit of this. The right. hair samples we lost. <laughs> right. I was getting ready to get that. Okay, the hair sorry. samples were lost. We lost the cigarette butts. We lost the cigarette butts. <laughs> the one key that we actually saw him use. And we knew that we had DNA evidence on Right, because it's right off of your lips. Right. So, and we lose those. Darn. <laughs> um, and in 1980, here's the... Here's the big one. In 1980, an eight-year-old named Brian Ingram was vacationing with his family on the Columbia River at a beachfront known as Tina Bar, nine miles downstream from Vancouver, Washington, and 20 miles southwest of Ariel, Washington. He was raking the sandy riverbank to build a campfire, and he uncovered three packets of ransom cash totaling $5,800. The bills had disintegrated from lengthy exposure to the elements, but were still bundled in rubber bands. FBI technicians confirmed that the money was indeed portion of the ransom. Two packets of the $120 bills, I'm sorry, two packets of $120 bills each, and a third packet of 90, all arranged the same as when given to Cooper. Same order. Same exact order. But, there was two you, you said it. No, there's 10 missing. Yeah. One packet had 10 bills right. missing. Right. Um, the Of course, the discovery law, ra- launched new rounds of conjecture. 
so there's a couple of different hypotheses. One's the free free floating hypothesis that says that this was just floating around in the rivers until it came to a place. It's impossible that it wouldn't happen. The river bands exposure would have made them break, and the money would have just and the money would have been disintegrated. Yeah, it was. Yeah. It had disintegrated quite a bit, but was still there on a lot of them to be oh, able sorry. to get the uh, serial numbers. Yeah. That wouldn't have happened if it was free-floating for eight-plus years. Right. Um, uh, so most people think, or not most people, uh, it is believed uh, that it was at least buried either by D.B. Cooper or by time for a bit of time. It was protected sure. from the elements. Some way, somehow. Uh, some and it was done so in a very particular time because some of the uh, allergens that were in the bills only happened at a very specific time uh, of the year in that particular area. Uh, so either the water covered it up at that particular time or DB buried it at that particular time, and then it became unburied at some point for him to find. Hoo-wee! So we talked a little bit about the parachutes that well, one of the front ones was an unusable training chute, but most people think that he probably knew that and was using that to put more money. You know, he ripped the top open. And put well, he was pissed there. because he had asked for a certain type of backpack to hold the money. They right. thought that didn't get delivered. So he had to take uh, one of the bags that a parachute was delivered in took one parachute and ripped some, cut some cords and yeah. made his own bag. Yeah, yeah, which is kind of cool. Uh, the sketches, every single sketch by every person who physically saw him are almost dead on. So there's no question of... They're very who, similar. Very similar. They, they know, and we'll, we'll link to the sketches on our, on our podcast here. But, Jerry, now it's time to get down to the nitty-gritty. Okay. Who was D.B. Cooper? Before we do that, okay. one thing that I thought was really, really interesting, this money that was found was found in 1980, I believe. Is that correct? Yes. Um, in 1986, get these pop-ups to go away here. In 1986, after protracted negotiations, the recovered bills were divided equally after giving... The FBI kept 14 for evidence. Right. The remaining bills were divided equally between Northwest Orient's insurer, who had already paid the money. They had already <laughs> paid it out. So the, not the, the Northwest Airline. Right. The insurance Who company. paid it. But their insurance company, who reimbursed them, got half of it. The other half went to the eight-year-old kid at the time, <laughs> Brian Ingram. Well, good now, for him. If you, th- there was a. Uh, Pull up a calculator if you could, real quick. Sure. $5,800 was found. FBI kept 14. 14 times 20 is 280. So 5,800 minus that, the 280, and then divide that by two. Well, that didn't work out well. Well, 5,800 would be 56 divided by two, roughly 2,800. So each of them got roughly 1,400. Yeah. $1,400, this eight-year-old boy at the time. He, he wasn't given out for six years. $1,400 that he was given in 1986. 
He sold 15 of those bills, 15 $20 bills, $300, okay, in 2008. So not for another 22 years. But he sold 15 of these $20 bills, $300 worth. He sold them at auction in 2008 for $37,000. Yeah, I saw that. At least the little boy who was raking the beach so his family could safely build a campfire and found the money. At least he was able to uh, get some right. money from it. Yeah. All right. So suspects. where do you start with these suspects? I have my suspect. Okay. You have your suspect. I do. And we're going to go through them. We'll see. Well, I hope I cover yours. Oh, uh, I'm no, not. No, not guaranteed. Here's the deal. Between 1971 and 2016, the FBI processed what they said was serious suspects only more than 1,000 people. They had more than 1,000 serious suspects in this case. Again, that only went to 2016 when it officially became an inactive case. Obviously, we can't sit here and go through uh, more than a thousand suspects. Right, right. I decided to limit it to the top six, I okay. believe. What do you got? Uh, okay. Ted. Right, my Ted Braden. Ted Braden is the first one I'm going to talk about. Born in 1928, lived in 2007. He was a Special Forces Commando during the Vietnam War. He was a master skydiver and a convicted felon. Let me digress for a second. Uh, the, the information about Mr. Cooper was conflicting when it comes to his ability and his experience as a parachutist. Yep. Several of the people said that he took these parachutes and began putting it on like it was a sports jacket. Something he did all the time. He had zero questions. He, he zero time spent looking at it, figuring how it went, how it's supposed to be turned. He knew what he was doing. The very fact that he was willing to jump out over an area where he didn't know exactly where he was at in the middle of the night in a forested area in the middle of November, when at ten thousand feet they believed that the temperature was roughly fifteen degrees above zero, seventeen degrees below freezing, in a business suit. Right. The, originally led him to believe this man died. He had zero chance. Then they started thinking, you know, if he really was that familiar with equipment, if he was that willing to jump out, you combine that with the fact that he was able to look out the airplane and recognize right. the city. Right. He was able to tell him how far away it was from a nearby Air Force base. Let him to to this guy. Pro he knew about how to set the plane for slow flight for proper jump speed. He knew about the stair, the rear yeah. staircase in the 727, which was extremely rare. Most vast majority of most planes didn't have it. So when you put all that together, they begin to think this guy probably has some military experience, probably was an experienced parachutist. Sure. That was the prevailing thought for many years. Later on, the FBI ended up thinking that's probably not the case, because after talking to hundreds and thousands of people who were very good parachutists, most of them said, I wouldn't begin to dream of doing this. There's no <laughs> way. In the middle of the night, right. to jump out over a wooded area. Where you have no idea, no how, idea you're how close you are to the trees. You, you're wearing a pair of penny loafers. You have on a business suit. Again, the store, we think that if he did make it, this robbery at this one grocery right. store, one of the things taken was gloves. You would think you'd have the gloves with you. With you. If you were experienced, you knew what you're doing. Anyway, I digress. One of the reasons Ted Braden was a suspect 
Special Forces Commando during the Vietnam War, a master skydiver, and a convicted felon. He eventually became one of the military's leading parachutists, and his military records list him as having made over 1,100 jumps. During the 1960s, he was a team leader within the MAC Vscog, uh, a classified commando unit of Green Berets. In December of 66, he deserted his unit in Vietnam. He made his way to the Congo to serve as a mercenary. He was only there for a short time before he was arrested by the CIA. He was brought back to the United States for a court-martial. He deserted. Mm-hmm. was brought back for a court-martial. But despite it having committed what could be a capital offense, they can punish you with death for that. Yep. He not only was, did not receive death, he was given an honorable discharge and was ordered that he could never re-enlist in the military in exchange for his continued secrecy about this Mac V Escog program that right. he was in. At the time of the hijacking, he was a truck driver for Consolidated Freightways, which was head co- headquartered in Vancouver, Washington, just across the Columbia River from Portland, not far from the suspected drop zone of Ariel. Some of the cons. Guy was considered to be too short. He had the wrong colored eyes, according to different witnesses. So, Mr. Ted Braden, is that one of your highly nope. ranked suspects? He was highly ranked, yes, but he looks nothing like D.B. Cooper. He does not. I, I don't believe. When you look at the pictures, he does not. The next gentleman I'm going to talk about is Mr. Dwayne Weber. Lived from 1924 to 1995, was a World War II Army vet who served time in at least six prisons between 1945 and 68 for burglary and forgery. When you combine the Army experience with the prison felony experience, I'm sure it was part of what led him to the uh, to be a suspect. But the biggest reason was after he died, his widow, Joe claimed that he told her that he was Cooper on it as a deathbed confession. She also says that they went to the area in 1979, roughly eight years. And also, if you remember, 1979 would be the summer before the money was found. She claims that she witnessed him throwing a trash bag in the river just upstream from where the three packets of money were found. Now, his fingerprints didn't match any found on the plane. Let me digress for a second. Since we lost the cigarette butts, since he was very meticulous and he left nothing behind other than the tie and the tie tack, we do not have any confirmed fingerprints of his. They do have a ton of fingerprints on the plane, and the FBI never confirmed, but most people believe that the FBI thought was that somewhere on the plane, amongst all these fingerprints they did have, and it was in the several hundreds of number of different fingerprints that they had that they believed that at least one of those was his. Um, they were not able to, with any one item, say this is his fingerprints. So the FBI would never confirm whether or not they had his fingerprints. They did, although on a few occasions, and this is one, say that his fingerprints didn't match any that they had on record. Right. Uh, again, we're not for sure that we actually have. Mr. Cooper's fingerprints. Right. Furthermore, you talked about the tie. You talked about the fact that DNA was not in existence in 1971. It was a technology that we were researching and working on. Somewhere in late uh, 1990s, early 2000s, it became a reality 
the tie was tested and three pieces of DNA evidence were found on the tie. That has been assumed to be his DNA, although there is nothing that confirms that this evidence on the tie was his DNA. Maybe he pissed some guy off and someone actually pissed on him. <laughs> we, we have no idea if this is his DNA or not, but the FBI thought that it was. With Mr. Dwayne Weber, we know that his DNA does not match the samples that were recovered from the tie. Mr. Dwayne Weber. He's see? out. Okay, he's out. He's not the suspect from either one. Next suspect, Mr. Sheridan Peterson. From 1926 to 2021. He just died a couple of years ago. He was 95 years old. Now, here, now this is not my guy. Okay. But there's some evidence and points there. There's some evidence and points there, and he kind of looks like him. A little, little more, bit. He's a little fatter, I think, for that particular time. But a little bit. He's very close, but I don't think he's my guy either. He served in the Marine Corps during World War II, was later employed as a technical editor at Boeing, based in Seattle. They took an interest in him as a suspect soon after the skydiving because of his experience as a smoke jumper, his love of taking physical risk, as well as what you mentioned, his very similar appearance and age to the oh. Cooper description. Some of the cons were he was not known to be a smoker. Now, if I was getting ready to jump out of an airplane and could possibly die, <laughs> I feel pretty sure that I could pretty easily take up smoking, even if it was something I'd never done. But again, a con that he was not known to be a smoker. His hairline was considered to be far too receding to match uh, the descriptions that they had and also the wrong eye color. Were you going to get into the uh, the letters and the codes and some of that? that no, I wasn't, him? I wasn't because we were just running out of time. We are. Yeah. Sheridan Peterson. Not my guy. Not my guy either. Thumbs he, in down fact, from insisted he was in Nepal during this whole thing. He did. Just so you know. And that story never changed, ever. Next suspect, Kenneth Christensen, a Northwest Airlines flight attendant who had parachuting knowledge. He matches some eyewitness descriptions. In 2003, Lyle Christensen, watching a documentary about the hijacking, believed his late brother Kenneth was Cooper. He notified the film director of his suspicions apparently hoping that a movie would be made about the case, which just... You're trying to get some money out of your dead brother. Shame on you. Shame on you. Uh, He was never considered to be that close of a suspect. His picture favored a little bit. Uh, He was not known to have been in the area at the exact time. ton of information pointing away from it, even though his own brother was saying, I believe this guy did it. Mr. Christensen. No guy. Thumbs up. I agree. Thumbs down. Next suspect, Mr. Robert Wesley Rackstraw from 1943 to 2019, was a retired pilot and ex-convict who served on an Army helicopter crew with other units during the Vietnam War. He came to the attention of the task force in February 78, so again, not for a few years. After he was arrested in Iran and deported to the U.S. to face explosives possession, as well as check-cutting charges. Several months later, while released on bail, he attempted to fake his own death (laughs) by radioing a false mayday call, and he told controllers that he was bailing out of a rented plane over Monterey Bay, which they later found the plane. Uh, He'd been painted. Been painted. He just faked his own death. Uh, Very little matching evidence with this one. Uh, Tina Mucklow, the, the... flight attendant that he spent 
Mr. Cooper spent the majority of the time with said that she did not find any similarities between the photo of Rackstraw from the 70s and her recollection of his appearance. Mr. Rackstraw. Nope. Your guy? Not my guy. I You're running out, Jerry. No, I do not have your guy. You're going to have to go into the. (laughs) I had to draw a line somewhere. I knew that I was probably going to exceed my length of time. The next guy that you've already said is not yours is my guy. So I know that that, that I do not have yours. Well, I have the information on my guy. So I'll let you cover that. All right. My guy, Mr. Richard McCoy Jr., from 1942 to 1974. He was an Army veteran who served two tours of duty in Vietnam, first as a demolition expert, leader with the Green Berets, as a helicopter pilot. After his military service, he became a warrant officer in the Utah National Guard and an avid recreational skydiver. On April the 7th of 72, he staged the best known of the so-called copycat hijackings. We mentioned this a couple of times within, I think, a year or two. Of D.B. Cooper's hijacking, there was five or six copycat hijackings. People looked and said, hey, this guy was able to pull this stunt and walk away with one point, you know, today's worth, today's money, $1.4 million. Maybe we should give this a try. And it was tried several times. This gentleman successfully pulled it off. He did. He was able to board the United States. Yeah, for a couple of days, not long. <laughs> he was able to board the United Airlines Flight 855. Again, another Boeing 727 with stairs in the rear. And he did that in Denver, Colorado. He brandished what later proved to be a paperweight that resembled a hand grenade. That was his bomb. He had an unloaded handgun. He demanded again four parachutes. And his demands went up 500000 Two and a half times as much as Mr. Cooper. After getting his money and his parachutes, he ordered the plane back into the air, and he jumped out over Provo, Utah. He was not nearly as smooth as Mr. Cooper. He left several things behind. He left his handwritten hijacking notes, the magazine that he had been reading with his fingerprints all over it. It took him, as you said, two days later to find him. Still had the money, the ransom cash on him. He received a 45-year sentence, and he escaped two years later. <laughs> Three months later, he was tracked down, shot, and killed in a shootout with FBI agents. Yeah, Virginia Beach. Yep, Virginia Beach. In their 1991 book, D.B. Cooper, The Real McCoy, parole officer Bernie Rhodes and former FBI agent Russell Colomain asserted that they had identified McCoy as Cooper. They cited obvious similarities in the two hijackings, Claims by McCoy family that the tie and the mother of Pearl tie clip left on the plane belonged to McCoy, and McCoy's own refusal to admit or even deny that he was Cooper. The FBI agent who killed him said, when I shot Richard McCoy, I also shot D.B. Cooper at the same time. But, but there is credible evidence that McCoy was in Las Vegas on the day of the Portland hijacking. There's also credible evidence that he was in Utah the day after having Thanksgiving dinner with his family. Yep. We again will link to the pictures, and the pictures is what gets me. There's yep. a picture of Richard McCoy that matches almost oh, to I know. I'm flipping at him. T, one of the sketches I know. of the suspect. I know. I'm He's talking if you if you were sitting looking at the real guy and drew a picture, it'd be hard to draw a better picture than the composite sketch of Dan Cooper. Yeah. But 
and the effort to be fair. Since I missed your guy, please tell us who you think the most likely suspect would be. So, I, the <coughs> drum the real, roll, the real McCoy. D.B. Cooper is none other than Mr. Joe Lakitch. Joe Lakitch was born in 1921, died in 2017, was a retired U.S. Army major and Korean War veteran whose daughter Susan Giff was killed less than two months before the hijacking as a consequence of a botched hostage negotiation conducted by who? The FBI. The events culminating in the death of Lakitch's daughter would be studied by hostage negotiators for decades as an example of what not to do during a hostage situation. He and his wife later sued the FBI, and ultimately an appeals court ruled in their favor, holding the FBI uh, negligent during the hostage negotiation. Lakitch would later become a Cooper suspect, large in large part due to the revelation that Cooper's tie contained microscopic particles of uncommon metals, such as unalloyed titanium. It is speculated that very few people during that era would have had contact with such materials, and that Cooper may have worked in a manufacturing environment on electronics as an engineer or manager when the hijacking occurred. Joe Lakitch was working in Nashville as a production supervisor in an electronics capacitor factory and would likely have been exposed to said materials. When Cooper was asked, and I left this part out specifically because I wanted to bring it in here. Okay. When asked by the flight attendant, Tina Mucklow, why? Because she felt comfortable with him. He was so nice. She asked him, uh, why are are you doing this? Do you have a grudge against our airline? And he said, it's not because I have a grudge against your airline. It's just because I have a grudge. Not because of the money. Not because of anything. Do you think anyone's going to sit there and say, uh, just the money? Listen. No. It is believed by some, myself included, that this grudge was looked Kitch's anger toward the FBI for their failed efforts at rescuing his daughter less than two months earlier. Look, this explains he's employed. He doesn't need the money. He doesn't have to have it, which is why none of the money's ever been found, why he didn't spend it. This was a. This but how does this satisfy his grudge? It's a big F you. You punished an insurance company. That's the only people you yeah, punish. but people that are in those throws, they don't realize that they're punishing that. They're making the FBI for 45 years look like a bunch of dumbasses. <laughs> I'm just saying. This man died yeah, that, in 2017, and I bet from nine, from twenty from tw- uh, 1971 till 2017, he smiled a little every day knowing that he pulled the I FBI. think whoever it was, if he didn't die immediately, of course he smiled a lot. So the only unsolved plane hijacking, skyjacking yes. to ever occur. And here's here's a couple of things. Now, Joe Lakitch looks similar. He does not look as close as your guy, right? I, we're not going to even try to go there. Your guy looks like spitting image, but your guy's follow-ups are so sloppy. Your guy's follow-ups are so ridiculous. 
if it was about the money and you upped it for 500000 why didn't you spend any of the money to begin with, the early money? Did you well, think, think this money was going to be different? I think he probably died. I don't um, understand why the parachute wasn't found. There's a lot of wooded area out there, yeah. a lot of places to search. But still, you would think sooner or later we would have found a parachute. Something. I mean, we found a placard for instructions, On but no, in, no big, well. huge parachute. Parachutes are not small. <laughs> it's not something that's easily hidden. You have to make it go away. Um, but I do think that he survived. I think that the burglary was Joe Lakech um, making uh, a uh, uh, to be able to survive. I do think that D.B. Cooper lived and he buried the money and that's why the money was still bundled. And I think that he got away with it. I don't think he passed away that night. At this point, we will probably never know. No, we will never know. Um, there are people out there who claim on video and TikTok, oh, I know for sure who the, the person was. No, he no. told me. You no. don't know. <laughs> That's I'm someone sorry. like the one guy that with his deceased brother, yeah. you're trying to figure out how to make a buck. Yeah. You, you um, talked about a lot of people trying to figure it out. If you do decide this is interesting enough to pursue it further, a couple of suggestions. There's something called the Cooper Vortex, if you really like podcasts. That podcast is dedicated to the uh, to this case, the Cooper Vortex. Two guys, Darren Schaefer and Russell Colbert. So far, they have done 72 episodes on my batteries running low. I hope it survives the next few minutes. They have done 72 episodes on this case. Fair to say they know a little bit more than you and you and I do. We will uh, put up a list of their podcasts. There's also a couple of groups. One is the D.B. Cooper Mystery Group on Facebook, 4,400 amateur sleuths who, as their hobby, investigate this case. Wow. 4,400 people who are actively, not because they're being paid, not because it's their job, as a hobby, they are still investigating this case, trying to figure out who's doing it. Wow. Citizensleuths.com. I don't know if you come across them. There's a ton of evidence uh, and information on their website. You can also, the FBI has a uh, a uh, website for the D.B. Cooper hijacking. ton of information out there. Crazy. We have only scratched the surface. So I, I'm probably going to jump the gun a bit here, Jerry, but... Do you think this needs more or less news coverage? I think the man is dead uh, at this point. He would be in his mid to late 80s, if the guesses of his age at the time were correct. So he's probably dead, even if he didn't die at the time. The money is probably long since gone, no matter if he buried it or whatever, unless it was, you know, an extremely. Uh, and it's always tainted. It's always going to be tainted. Yeah, the, and banks and everywhere still looking for those numbers to show up. I think we'll probably never know. So I think it uh, certainly could use more coverage. I don't think it's going to yield any results. I don't either. I think it's, I, I'm going to, let's move on with different stuff. It's a great story to talk about. It's wonderful. It's not, I, I couldn't do a whole podcast for 72 episodes <laughs> on this one particular issue, but kudos to the guys that do and are I trying agree. to get to the bottom of it. But for me, it's a thumbs down. I love this story. I love everything about it. Um, but I don't 
think it needs more attention <laughs> unless agree. we have new evidence. Because nothing's going to come up. It right. Um, so that's my thought. Hey guys, uh, real quick, Christmas time's coming. So a little fun thing that I'd like to do, and I'm throwing this on Jerry. Jerry's like, what? <laughs> um, I've got three gift cards that I want to give away. Three. Um, and the way I want to do that is I want to send you a gift card, some business cards for Newsworthy, and a a greeting card with mine and Jerry and, and Brett's uh, personalized greeting for you. And we'll do that to the first three people who send us an email at... Newsworthy with Stephen Jerry at gmail.com. Send us your name and address. Um, you know, you ask whatever, you know, my, you know, you know, whatever you're comfortable with so we can get the card to you. Um, the first three that send us, if you live in a different country, that's fine. The gift cards go worldwide. Um, Absolutely. And we would love to be able to send you a personalized greeting for the Christmas season for us. The first three people. Um, who've listened to our podcast and would think that would be a cool thing to get for Christmas, let us know so we can get that in the mail to you. Otherwise, um, uh, DB Cooper, uh, thumbs down. Did you, did you, did you thumbs up or down it? I would thumbs down. Thumbs down. Two thumbs down. And we're going to say Brent would be a thumbs up, but he's not here. He's getting his back hair braided still. <laughs> Man, that episode is really interesting. And if you'll stick around for us for just a few commercials, we have another great story to tell you. Hi, this is Ed Locke with USA Mortgage. When it comes to buying a home, the process can be overwhelming and confusing. With so many options, it can be hard to know where to start. That's why it's important to work with a certified mortgage loan originator. I have the knowledge and expertise to guide you through the process and find the best mortgage option for you. I will work with you every step of the way to ensure that you are getting the best deal possible. So if you're looking to purchase or refinance, please reach out to me at 502-680-0953. So don't take on the stress of buying a home alone. Work with me and I will make your dream a reality. Trust the professionals and make your home buying experience a positive one. MLS ID 448908, DAS Acquisition Company, LLC, doing business as USA Mortgage, MLS ID 227262. This is not a commitment to lend. Additional terms and conditions apply. USA Mortgage is equal housing opportunity. If you want us to review or rate your product on air, if you have suggestions for new episodes, awesome ghost stories, or anything else, please reach out to us. Our email address is newsworthywithstephenjerry at gmail.com. Our text number is area code 540-709-1318. And now, back to the story. Tonight's story comes from Science News and Tina Say. We're going to take a new look at Otzi the Iceman's DNA. It reveals that his ancestors weren't who scientists previous thought. Back in 2012, scientists compiled a complete picture of Otzi's genome, and it showed some really curious things. It showed that Otzi is about 5,300 years old. The problem is, other people with steppe ancestry didn't appear on the genetic record in Central Europe until about 4,900 years ago. Otzi is far too old to have that type of ancestry. He has always been an outlier. 
But the Iceman still has oddities. A 90% of Oatsy's genetic heritage comes from Neolithic farmers, an unusually high amount compared to that of other Copper Age remains. The Iceman's new genome reveals that he had male pattern baldness and much darker skin than artist representation suggests. Genes conferring light skin tones didn't become prevalent until three to 4,000 years ago when farmers started eating plant-based diets and didn't get as much vitamin D from fish and meat as hunter-gatherers did. As Otzi and other ancient people's DNA illustrates, the skin color genetic the skin color genetics took thousands of years to become commonplace in Europe. People in, that means that people that lived in Europe between 40,000 years ago and 8,000 years ago were as dark as the people in Africa, which makes a lot of sense because Africa is where all humans came from. It's what Krauss said. We have always imagined that Europeans became light-skinned much faster, but now it seems, thanks to Otzi, that this actually happened quite late in human history. And Jerry, if you can't see the light, be the light.